Welcome to Bite at a Time Books, where we read you your favorite classics one bite at a time. My name is Brie Carlisle, and I love to read and wanted to share my passion with listeners like you. If you want to know what's coming next and vote on upcoming books, sign up for our newsletter at biteatatimebooks.com. You'll also find our new t-shirts in the shop, including podcast shirts and quote shirts from your favorite classic novels. Be sure to follow my show on your favorite podcast platform so you get all the new episodes. You can find most of our links in the show notes. But also our website, biteatatimebooks.com, includes all of the links for our show, including to our Patreon to support the show, and YouTube, where we have special behind-the-narration of the episodes. We're part of the Bite at a Time Books Productions Network. If you'd also like to hear what inspired your favorite classic authors to write their novels— and what was going on in the world at the time, check out the Bite at a Time books behind the story podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Please note, while we try to keep the text as close to the original as possible, some words have been changed to honor the marginalized communities who've identified the words as harmful and to stay in alignment with Bite at a Time books' brand values. Today we'll be continuing Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter 41 In vain should I attempt to describe the astonishment and disquiet of Herbert, when he and I and Provis sat down before the fire and I recounted the whole of the secret, enough that I saw my own feelings reflected in Herbert's face, and not the least among them my repugnance towards the man who had done so much for me. What would alone have set a division between that man and us, if there had been no other dividing circumstance, was his triumph in my story." saving his troublesome sense of having been low on one occasion since his return, on which point he began to hold forth to Herbert the moment my revelation was finished. He had no perception of the possibility of my finding any fault with my good fortune. His boast that he had made me a gentleman, and that he had come to see me support the character on his ample resources, was made for me quite as much as for himself, and that it was a highly agreeable boast to both of us, and that we must both be very proud of it, was a conclusion quite established in his own mind. "'No, oh, looky here, Pip's comrade,' he said to Herbert after having discoursed for some time. "'I know very well that once since I come back for half a minute, I've been low. I said to Pip I knowed as I had been low. But don't you fret yourself on that score. I ain't made Pip a gentleman, and Pip ain't a-going to make you a gentleman. Not for me not to know what's due to ye both.' Dear boy and Pip's comrade, you two may count upon me always having a genteel muzzle on. Muzzled I've been since that half a minute when I was betrayed into lowness. Muzzled I am at the present time, muzzled I ever will be. Herbert said certainly, but looked as if there were no specific consolation in this, and remained perplexed and dismayed. We were anxious for the time when he would go to his lodging and leave us together. But he was evidently jealous of leaving us together and sat late. It was midnight before I took him round to Essex Street, and saw him safely in at his own dark door. When it closed upon him, I experienced the first moment of relief I had known since the night of his arrival. Never quite free from an uneasy remembrance of the man on the stairs, I had always looked about me in taking my guest out after dark, and in bringing him back, and I looked about me now. Difficult as it is in a large city to avoid the suspicion of being watched, when the mind is conscious of danger in that regard... I could not persuade myself that any of the people within sight cared about my movements. The few who were passing passed on their several ways, and the street was empty when I turned back into the temple. Nobody had come out at the gate with us. 
Nobody went in at the gate with me. As I crossed by the fountain, I saw his lighted back windows looking bright and quiet, and when I stood for a few moments in the doorway of the building where I lived, before going up the stairs, Garden Court was as still and lifeless as the staircase was when I ascended it. Herbert received me with open arms, and I had never felt before so blessedly what it is to have a friend. When he had spoken some sound words of sympathy and encouragement, we sat down to consider the question, what was to be done? The chair that Provis had occupied still remained where it had stood, for he had a barrack way with him of hanging about one spot in an unsettled manner, and going through one round of observances with his pipe and his negro head and his jackknife and his pack of cards and whatnot, as if it were all put down for him on a slate. I say his chair remaining where it had stood. Herbert unconsciously took it, but next moment started out of it, pushed it away, and took another. He had no occasion to say after that that he had conceived an aversion for my patron. Neither had I occasion to confess my own. We interchanged that confidence without shaping a syllable. What, said I to Herbert, when he was safe in another chair, what is to be done? My poor dear Handel, he replied, holding his head. I am too stunned to think. So was I, Herbert, when the blow first fell. Still, something must be done. He is intent upon various new expenses, horses and carriages and lavish appearances of all kinds. He must be stopped somehow. You mean that you can't accept? How can I? I interposed as Herbert paused. Think of him. Look at him. An involuntary shudder passed over both of us. Yet I'm afraid the dreadful truth is, Herbert, that he is attached to me, strongly attached to me. Was there ever such a fate? My poor dear Handel, Herbert repeated. Then, said I, after all, stopping short here, never taking another penny from him, think what I owe him already. Then again, I am heavily in debt, very heavily for me, who have now no expectations, and I've been bred to no calling, and I'm fit for nothing. Well, 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 Herbert remonstrated. Don't say fit for nothing. What am I fit for? I know only one thing that I'm fit for, and that is to go for a soldier. And I might have gone, my dear Herbert, but for the prospect of taking counsel with your friendship and affection. Of course, I broke down there, and of course, Herbert, beyond seizing a warm grip of my hand, pretended not to know it. Anyhow, my dear Handel, said he presently, soldiering won't do if you were to renounce this patronage and these favors. I suppose you would do so with some faint hope of one day repaying what you've already had. Not very strong, that hope, if you went soldiering. Besides, it's absurd. You would be infinitely better in Clericker's house, small as it is. I'm working up towards a partnership, you know. Poor fellow, he little suspected with whose money. But there is another question, said Herbert. This is an ignorant, determined man who has long had one fixed idea. More than that, he seems to me, I may misjudge him, to be a man of a desperate and fierce character. I know he is. I returned. Let me tell you what evidence I've seen of it. And I told him what I had not mentioned in my narrative, of that encounter with the other convict. See then, said Herbert, think of this. He comes here at the peril of his life for the realization of his fixed idea. In the moment of realization, after all his toil and waiting, you cut the ground from under his feet, destroy his idea, and make his gains worthless to him. Do you see nothing that he might do under the disappointment? I have seen it, Herbert, and dreamed of it ever since the fatal night of his arrival. Nothing has been in my thoughts so distinctly as this putting himself in the way of being taken. Then you may rely upon it, said Herbert, that there would be great danger of his doing it. 
That is his power over you as long as he remains in England, and that would be his reckless course if you forsook him. I was so struck by the horror of this idea which had weighed upon me from the first, and the working out of which would make me regard myself in some sort as his murderer, that I could not rest in my chair but began pacing to and fro. I'd said to Herbert, meanwhile, that even if Provis were recognized and taken in spite of himself, I should be wretched as the cause, however innocently. Yes, even though I was so wretched in having him at large and near me, and even though I would far rather have worked at the forge all the days of my life than I would ever have come to this. But there was no staving off the question. What was to be done? The first and the main thing to be done, said Herbert, is to get him out of England. You will have to go with him, and then he may be induced to go. But get him where I will, could I prevent his coming back? My good handle, is it not obvious that with Newgate in the next street, there must be far greater hazard in your breaking your mind to him and making him reckless here than elsewhere? If a pretext to get him away could be made out of that other convict, or out of anything else in his life, now. There again, said I, stopping before Herbert with my open hands held out as if they contained the desperation of the case. I know nothing of his life. It has almost made me mad to sit here of a night and see him before me, so bound up with my fortunes and misfortunes, and yet so unknown to me except as the miserable wretch who terrified me two days in my childhood. Herbert got up and linked his arm in mine, and we slowly walked to and fro together studying the carpet. Handel, said Herbert, stopping. You feel convinced that you can take no further benefits from him, do you? Fully. Surely you would too if you were in my place. And you feel convinced that you must break with him. Herbert, can you ask me? And you have, and are bound to have that tenderness for the life he has risked on your account, that you must save him if possible from throwing it away. Then you must get him out of England before you stir a finger to extricate yourself. That done, extricate yourself in heaven's name and we'll see it out together, dear old boy. It was a comfort to shake hands upon it and walk up and down again with only that done. Now, Herbert, said I, with reference to gaining some knowledge of his history... There is but one way that I know of. I must ask him point blank. Yes, ask him, said Herbert, when we sit at breakfast in the morning. For he had said on taking leave of Herbert that he would come to breakfast with us. With this project formed, we went to bed. I had the wildest dreams concerning him and woke unrefreshed. I woke, too, to recover the fear which I had lost in the night of his being found out as a returned transport. Waking, I never lost that fear. He came round at the appointed time took out his jackknife and sat down to his meal. He was full of plans for his gentleman's coming out strong and like a gentleman, and urged me to begin speedily upon the pocketbook which he had left in my possession. He considered the chambers and his own lodging as temporary residences, and advised me to look out at once for a fashionable crib near Hyde Park, in which he could have a shakedown. When he had made an end of his breakfast and was wiping his knife on his leg, I said to him, without a word of preface, after you were gone last night, I told my friend of the struggle that the soldiers found you engaged in on the marshes when we came up. You remember? Remember, said he. I think so. We want to know something about that man. And about you. It is strange to know no more about either, and particularly you, than I was able to tell last night. Is not this as good a time as another for our knowing more? Well, he said after consideration, you're on your oath, you know, Pip's comrade. Assuredly, replied Herbert. As to anything I say, you know, he insisted. The oath applies to all. I understand it to do so. 
And looky here, whatever I'd done is worked out and paid for. He insisted again. So be it. He took out his black pipe and was going to fill it with Negro head when looking at the tangle of tobacco in his hand. He seemed to think it might perplex the thread of his narrative. He put it back again, stuck his pipe in a buttonhole of his coat, spread a hand on each knee, and after turning an angry eye on the fire for a few silent moments, looked around at us and said what follows. Thank you for joining Bite at a Time Books today. While well, we read a bite of one of your favorite classics. Again, my name is Brie Carlisle, and I hope you come back tomorrow for the next bite of Great Expectations. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at biteatatimebooks.com and check out the shop. You can check out the show notes or our website, biteatatimebooks.com, for the rest of the links for our show. We'd love to hear from you on social media as well.